great to have this uh, time with you this morning. I hope you're all settled in. I hope you have your Bibles in front of you open to the Gospel of John chapter 3. And uh, we're going to get started, as Jordan said, on this uh, brand new series called Conversations with Jesus. He's actually going to be sharing this series with me over the next uh, seven weeks. And so let's, let's get started here. And uh, I want to think about conversations for a little bit. You just know that you're having a conversation um, with someone who knows how to have a conversation. I mean, you know that it's not just a one-way thing. It's an actual dialogue and exchange of ideas. By its nature, a conversation is a respectful back and forth as words are exchanged. And much of what we experience in our lives, we might call it conversation, but it's not truly conversation because either we have one person talking and one listening or very often, we have two people talking and no one is listening, and neither of those things is conversation. True conversation, according to um, one author that I read, he's a communications leader, his name is Jason Demers, um, he says that uh, conversation is characterized in part by, here's just a few things that he said in this article, having something worthwhile to say, that's communication, uh, being okay with silence, no one domin dominating, no one being argumentative, and having thoughtful intonation, tonality in our voices. And, and that's why often we say that you can't really have a text conversation because you, you're not picking up all those nonverbal cues. You can't really communicate well in an email because there's no nonverbal cues that are going on in there. And even, let's be really careful here during this time, even Zoom meetings and Google Hangouts and, 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 and uh, FaceTime calls, they lack an element of being together with the person and exchanging words and picking up everything that's being said. Now listen, all of that is helpful from a, a very practical standpoint in understanding what conversation is. It would make a great little TED talk, uh, but what I want to I have us think about certain conversations. In fact, I want us to think about over these next seven weeks, conversations that Jesus had with people in the Gospels and, and how they might help us consider how Jesus had something to pick up one of those things that we said about conversation. Jesus had something worthwhile to say about a wide range of topics that are very relevant to us today. Things that are going to be helpful for us to consider as we face so much today. So we're going to look at seven such topics over the next seven Sundays. And I do believe that this is going to stir up even more conversations between us as we think about these things. Okay, that's the introduction to the entire series. And now uh, getting right into message one, right into the thick of conversation, right into the thick of controversial conversation. And let's have a respectful talk, a conversation about Religion, and some people think that it's impossible to even have a respectful conversation about religion. But here we are in John chapter 3, and Jesus is talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus, and he's talking to him about matters of faith. It is a conversation about re religion, and the struggle that Nicodemus was having with the things that Jesus was saying. Now, Nicodemus, to be sure, he was already a religious guy, but evidently, because he's approaching Jesus, he still has some questions. He has an emptiness inside of him that wasn't being satisfied by his current religious practice. And that no doubt describes many people today. Maybe you. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen in on the conversation. 
what Jesus had to say, hear it all, and maybe that moves you today to a greater understanding of what it means to truly know God. So let me read the passage for us. It's John chapter 3. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 21, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll uh, start unpacking this. So John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does the wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray for a moment. (coughs) Uh, Father, you're so good to us. You have blessed us again with the ability to get together God, you have given us your word to speak into our circumstances, however minor or however major. And Father, we know you have a word for us today. I know you have a word for those who are watching right now. And God, I pray that you would speak that clearly by your Holy Spirit through these words. Father, I thank you for hearing this prayer, for your grace and mercy toward us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You agree with that? Just say amen right where you are. All right. If you're ready to fill that emptiness inside, that's what we're going after now, filling the emptiness inside of us. If you're ready for that, there's some things that we need to look at that are going to indicate your readiness for that. But before we get to that, I want us to actually understand this emptiness that we're talking about. 
Blaise Pascal, you may remember uh, that name uh, from high school. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician, philosopher, theologian, inventor. He was a bunch of things. And he spoke of what has come to be known, not exactly his words, but what has come to be known as the God-shaped vacuum. The God-shaped vacuum that's in the heart of every single human being. It's the void that's there because we don't have God in our lives. And a void that can only be filled by God. Now here are the exact words of of Pascal in his, um, his publication, Pensée, which is a philosophy of, of, of faith, a defense of the faith, if you will. And this is what he says. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This He tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable that is unchanging, an immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Pascal was making the point that we have to look to God to fill that emptiness that's in our lives. That, that we can't seek those things in, 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 in anything that's provided in the world. Other religions, wealth, status, achievements, human relationships even, as wonderful as they might be. All of these things leave us empty still. Because only God himself can fill that void, that abyss, that emptiness, that God-shaped vacuum. Pascal wasn't the first to speak about it, of this. In fact, many hundreds of years before, King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart. This is what some others have called the divine spark, or we could talk about it in terms of the God consciousness that every human being has, it's, it's built into our human operating system. And even the atheist has to admit that there's an emptiness in each life, that there are questions that need to be answered. The atheist simply fills that spot in and convinces him or herself that it's filled with their atheistic belief. And so we make this reasonable assumption that every single human being is looking for this. Every single human being is looking for, I'll just put it in quotes for now, is looking for God. Trying to find him. Trying to fill the emptiness. But all in the wrong places. That helps us to understand this emptiness and gets us set now for what we see in the passage and the perspective that Nicodemus had coming into all of this. If you're ready to fill that emptiness inside your life in the right way, then first be willing to listen. This is a basic principle of conversation. We listen not to respond, but we listen for understanding. And there seems to be careful listening on both sides of the Nicodemus-Jesus conversation here. We see that Nicodemus, in fact, was motivated enough to seek Jesus out. 
I mean, he, he took the initiative to go and find Jesus and to ask him these questions. He was willing to listen to what Jesus had to say beyond what he'd already heard him say. Now, albeit verse 2 says that he came at night, he was afraid of reprisals for going and talking to Jesus. He was, after all, verse 1 tells us, a member of the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling council in Israel. Nevertheless, he took the initiative, even if it was a slightly fearful one, he took the initiative because he had heard enough of Jesus' teaching to know that he was saying something that was worth hearing. It sparked an interest in him. So he's coming ready uh, to listen to what Jesus had to say. First, because he recognized that there was something very special in Jesus. In fact, in verse 2, he calls him rabbi. He gives him this distinguished title of teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, that's a great starting point. And I think most people, even today, would have the same starting point and say, yes, I believe Jesus was a historical figure. Yes, I believe he was a very special man. I believe that he said some very special things. Even if you do not yet believe that he is Lord and Savior, you can at the very least get to this point where you go, I believe he's special enough to listen to. He's a teacher come from God. And, and beyond that, that indeed he had done some things that were extraordinary for no one, Nicodemus says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, sensing the question and the reason for his visit, said to him in verse 3, here's the truth now, truly, truly I say to you, here's the truth, unless one is, here's that phrase, should be underlined in your Bibles, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is listening carefully to that, and he's trying to understand it. And we know that because he doesn't come back with an objection. He doesn't say, that's ridiculous. I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm so done with you. He doesn't do any of that. But he comes back with a question, genuine inquiry. It's a conversation. And he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second, this is weird, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's reasoning through it now. He's a religious leader. He's a teacher of Israel himself. But he's reasoning through all of this with logic, and it makes no sense to him, and that's why he's asking the question. And Jesus is so patient with him and replies in verse 5, here's the thing, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, he's going to tell him there's two different kinds of birth. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now he's laying out the difference between physical birth, that's the words water and flesh. Again, when we talk about physical birth, it's of the flesh. Obviously a human being is being born, and there's a lot of water. If you've ever been there for a birth, you know there's a lot of water. In fact, uh, 28 years ago, Next week, 28 years ago next week, uh, Cheryl was pregnant with Joel, and uh, we were sitting at home, and uh, she was on the couch, and uh, she said to me, we were watching um, CBC News, Peter Mansbridge was on, and uh, she said, my water broke, go get me a towel. And so I, I booted off to the little bathroom that was just off of our sitting area, and I, I brought back like a hand towel. And she said, I don't think you understand how much water there is. My water broke. And so went back, got a bigger towel. And um, there's a lot of water. And that's all, John, that's all Jesus is saying here in John 3. He's saying that 
you're born of water, okay? It's physical, physical, actual birth. And then he's also talking about the spiritual rebirth. And the point is really simple. Just being born, there's got to be both of these births. Just being born a human being doesn't get you to heaven, doesn't get you into a relationship with God. And then Jesus challenges him in verse 7. He says, don't be surprised that I said to you that you must be born again. That there needs to be a separate and distinct action to bring you into a relationship with God. No one is good with God by default. For Nicodemus, this meant that being Jewish and being a Jewish leader didn't automatically qualify him for heaven. For us, it means if you had Christian parents, it doesn't automatically mean that you're safe. If you're in a quasi-Christian country like Canada, it doesn't mean that you're automatically covered. Being religious doesn't qualify you. Being a good person doesn't qualify you. Doing good things doesn't qualify you. Because all of those things are of the flesh. All of those things are physical things that we do. And so, listen, Nicodemus is taking this all in. He's listening to that message. He's listening to this very out-of-the-box, radical explanation of what it takes to fill the emptiness inside. And the whole point of all of this up to now is this. Are you willing to listen to what Jesus has to say? And if yes, then perhaps you'd be willing to take the next step. We see it here in the notes. Be open to something new. Because that's what this is. For those who have not yet embraced Jesus Christ, this is brand new. This is new birth. You have to be born again. So there's no message like the message of Jesus Christ. There's no religion like that of the one that follows and adheres to Jesus Christ. Religion apart from Jesus doesn't offer you love, but instead offers you liturgy. And ritual. Religion apart from Jesus is, is not about relationship, but it's about rules. Religion apart from Jesus is not about grace, but demands that you work for it. Religion apart from Jesus is, is, is not a relief of your burden, but adds weight to your shoulders. Religion apart from Jesus doesn't fill the emptiness, but leaves you wanting And makes you a slave to it. So Jesus goes on to explain to him this little mini parable in verse 8. And he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. And this is the way it is with everybody who's born of the Spirit. It's a mystery, in other words. It, it, It falls within the realm of the spiritual. We can have a rational conversation about it, just like we are right now, just like Nicodemus and Jesus were having. But in the end of the day, what God does in our lives is supernatural. We see the powerful effects of the wind. This is Jesus' point in bringing it up in storms and blizzards and tornadoes and hurricanes. And like the wind, the the point that we take all of this is that God's spirit is unseen and it's powerful as he moves us. It is God at work to bring us to an understanding of who he is. And we we can be as firmly rooted as a 100-year-old oak tree 
And yet God can uproot us from our stubbornness and our unbelief. And that's what he was doing in Nicodemus' life. I mean, Nicodemus may not have known that God was at work in the way that he was in his life, bringing him to this conversation, but the Spirit was definitely blowing. The wind was picking up in Nicodemus' life. And verse 9, Nicodemus says back to him, how can these things be? In other words, how's that work? How's this possible to be spiritually reborn? Now, you may be watching this, and and you may have your own questions about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, about church. And Nicodemus is wondering about the nature and the means of the new birth. And Jesus was listening to him. Jesus was answering his questions. Jesus wasn't dismissing his questions as foolish. He's not showing any frustration or impatience with him. He does ask him rhetorically in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? Are are you presuming to be a teacher, a leader in Israel, a religious leader, a theologian? And you don't get these things? It's a bit of a dig. I mean, Nicodemus shouldn't have any trouble understanding that a spiritual answer is required here. And yet he was trying again to be so rational and all of his theological training and expertise apparently was failing him in this moment. And so Jesus goes on in verse 11. He says, here's the truth of it. We speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you're not listening to what we're saying. You haven't received our testimony. You've been listening to me teach all of these things. That's why you've come tonight with all of your questions. I mean, Jesus is saying to him, you're hearing all of it. And yet you have this unwillingness to actually believe what I'm saying. He goes on to say in verse 12, if I've told you earthly things, and he told them many earthly things, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I mean, Jesus taught on so many things. When you read the gospel, you see all the different things that Jesus taught. He addressed real world things issues. And you know, you and I are facing a real world issue right now. And the best answers that humanity can provide us in the midst of this very real world issue that we're facing, the very best answers that they can provide to us are at best conflicting and, 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 and thoroughly inadequate to deal with the multifaceted the multifaceted crisis that we're facing. The virus is just one of them. Political power grabs are another. The the state of the economy and the dipping into recession and perhaps heading toward a depression. Talk about the, the mental health of people and things that are happening in homes now. I'm just telling you, we don't have answers for all that. The world doesn't have answers for all of that. And here's Jesus speaking into real world issues and the religious leaders as a group were unwilling to hear any of it. By way of example, his most famous, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he spoke of very human realities like anger and lust and divorce and dealing with your enemies. He had gone throughout Galilee and Judah and, and, and done miracles. He gave sight to the blind and cleansed lepers. He healed the lame. He raised the dead. 
One of the things that, that caught people's attention about him was that he was very much a social activist who esteemed the place of women, who offered forgiveness to the prostitute, who broke down walls of ethnicity, who met the needs of the hungry and the poor, who esteemed both the young and the old. I mean, these are real world issues. Flesh and blood issues. They speak to where you and I live. And here's the point of all of that for Nicodemus and for me and you. If, if you and I can't see how Jesus' life and teaching impacts us right here and now, if we can't understand the need for him in our own place of human weakness, if we can't get all of that, then we'll never grasp what comes next. The eternal spiritual realities that are being communicated here. Nicodemus wasn't getting any of it at this point, but there's more to come. And despite Nicodemus's inability to grasp it all, Jesus pressed on to speak about the nature of who he was because it always comes down to the, to the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says about himself, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven. No one's gone to heaven, okay, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so this is a reference to Jesus coming from the Father to earth, to which he will return. And then Nicodemus is working through all of this. I mean, so much has already been put at him concerning being born again. He's trying to understand all of that. He's trying to put it all together. It's kind of like at this point, Jesus is going to add even more onto it. He just starts talking about himself, having come down from the Father in heaven. And Nicodemus is trying to process all of that. And, And Nicodemus is drinking from a fire hose, from a theological fire hose at this point. And then Jesus says, this, and he's going back now into the Old Testament, thousands of years before. This is the time when Israel had left Egypt and they were making their way to the promised land and they were in the wilderness and wandering and a lot of people were getting really fed up with how things were going. They didn't like the food and they didn't like where they were at. And, and, and so God was so um, done with their complaining and their murmuring that he sent judgment on them in the form of these vipers these venomous vipers that went out these snakes all through the camp and they were biting people and people were dying all around moses prayed and interceded on behalf of the people god have mercy god have mercy and god said to him you take a pole big long staff tall and i want you to put a snake up on that pole and lift it up and anyone who looks at that snake on that pole they'll be healed of the bites of the vipers. This all comes to us from, uh, this is in verse 14, where Jesus says, as, Bo- as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, it's all from Numbers 21, 1,400 years prior, lack of faith, complaining about God, judgment on God, and God provides this super strange cure. What's astonishing about this cure is that this symbol of death, the snake, This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the curse. The serpent was the one who tempted Eve. The curse that was placed on Adam and Eve and the serpent and on this world as a result of the sin that raced in. The serpent is a symbol of death, a symbol of evil. But now in the wilderness, as Moses lifts this snake up onto the staff, 
becomes this, this symbol of healing and hope, of life. Once again, a snake is killing people who have sinned, and yet God reverses things. The cursed, the cursed snake becomes the conduit of healing and life. God says, lift up the servant, have the people look at it, they'll be saved. And what does this all have to do with Jesus? Well, in the very same way, Jesus would be cursed on our behalf and yet be the agent of life. He too would be lifted up on the cross. He would die as a convicted criminal, taking the sin of humanity upon himself. But Jesus is speaking about himself here to Nicodemus and in Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul brings clarity to all of this when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So the eventual death of Jesus, the Son of Man, being lifted up, as he says here, on the cross is going to result in the healing and forgiveness that we all need. It's going to result, for those of us who would express belief in Christ, a relationship with God. It is the great reversal, the paradox of God's plan, rooted in mystery, a heavenly truth we cannot fully grasp and yet are asked to believe. And that, again, for some who are watching, that is the new thing that you need to be open to right now. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, may have eternal life. And if you do that from the heart, that God-shaped vacuum, that emptiness inside of you will be filled perfectly. All right, one last part now. You must be responsive to change. If you want the emptiness filled, you have to understand that change is going to be necessary. And I expect that if you have that emptiness inside of you, that's actually what you want. You want things in your life to change. You're searching for God. You want the void filled. You're saying, I want change in my life. So verse 16 now, we come to hashtag the most famous Bible verse going, okay? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, that change happens in our lives when we give our life to follow Jesus Christ as described in this verse. And as the, the verses continue, the passage continues, verses 17 through 21, we begin to see this series of contrasts that I am here, but I'm going to move to this. I was this, but now I'm this. When you believe, some things are going to happen that are going to change in your life. You move, verse 16 tells us this, you move from perishing, yes, the death we experience physically, but also something called second death, which is eternal death, which is separation from God forever. The very thing we're all trying to avoid. We move from perishing, verse 16, to now having life, eternal life with God. In verses 17 and 18, we move from being condemned, condemned by our own sin, 
separated from God as a result, to being saved, healed by Jesus. Verse 19, we move from darkness to light, which results in verses 20 and 21. I I no longer do wicked works, but now I do what is true in my life. The works, the evidence of salvation in my life flows out. In other words, all of these changes that are happening are going to be immediate changes, but then also eternal changes. And there's going to be a process for me getting there. There are going to be external changes that people can see, but there are also going to be spiritual changes internal to my life. There are positional changes. In other words, my standing, my status before God changes. I'm no longer condemned by sin, but now I'm a son or daughter of the king. But not only my positional status changes, also my experience changes in that my lifestyle now reflects my new status and is reflecting my new status. And all of that seems like such an awesome reason to embrace Jesus. But there's a better one. The most compelling reason, I believe, takes us back to the first few words of verse 16. For God so loved. Human beings have several really innate longings. One is to have a purpose, to know that my life matters. It's to have a sense of a belonging, to know why we're here. And it is to be loved. And that provides the most compelling reason to give your life to Jesus Christ. Not, not that you might love him, the most compelling reason to give your life to Jesus is because he loves you. Because he wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants you in his family. He wants to call you his son or his daughter. And that provides us with the very best thing to fill that emptiness in our lives. And the thing about God's love is it's it's unbreakable. We, we can be so disappointed in life. So many things in our lives that fail us. Even those who would pledge their love to us. Even those who are most important to us can at times disappoint us and crush us and hurt us. God never will. Again, the Apostle Paul brought greater understanding to this matter of love. He wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if you're responsive to this change, The love of God will flood in. The love of God will flood in and will fill that emptiness in your life like nothing else. Well, what became of Nicodemus? The passage here in John 3 doesn't tell us, but he shows up again in two other situations after this conversation with Jesus, and we're never told in the Scriptures explicitly in any way that he decided to follow Jesus. But here's what we do know. 
his actions seem to prove that he did. In fact, in chapter 7, verses 48 to 53, the religious council that Nicodemus was a part of, the Sanhedrin, was debating the works and words of Jesus, and their whole intent was to condemn him. Nicodemus stood up in the council and challenged the process and defended Jesus. And then in, in, in chapter 19, verses 38 to 42, Nicodemus and, and a man named Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus had died on the cross, they took the body of Jesus and they, they, they placed him in the tomb. Now here's the thing, to be associated with Jesus in that way, in both of those situations, was so risky for Nicodemus. Nicodemus was willing to put his reputation his status in society, his friendships, his livelihood, his influence. He was willing to put all of that on the line for Jesus because he knew it was worth it because of that conversation. And the question really is, what are you willing to put on the line to follow Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us.